If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, oh my gosh, you're in for a treat today. We have Chris Holmes, who's going to be speaking with us about one of her passions and her book, Ignite Your Career, Strategies and Tactics to Unleash Your Potential. Before we jump right in with Chris, though, I just have to share with you, you know, it's April-ish, Right now, I know a lot of organizations are starting to look at what happens post-pandemic. We're starting to see, hopefully, the end not that far in the future. And part of what that means for a lot of organizations is strategic planning. So if you are looking for strategic planning done right, one that is participatory and inclusive and gets data and feedback from lots of stakeholders and lots of sources, make sure you check out how we do our strategic planning at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. If you might be interested in launching a strategic planning project in mid-2021 to late 2021, now would be a good time to reach out. And now, listeners, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Chris Holmes. She can help you unleash your full potential and ignite your career in ways that you never thought it could take off. She has over 25 years of executive recruiting experience with the O'Connell Group. And I got to share this with you because this is really impressive. In those 25 years, she has placed over 1,000 executives and counseled over 20,000 executives. And, you know, there's kind of this 10,000-hour rule that if you've done something for 10,000 hours, you're probably a pro at it. Well, I promise you, she has spent way more than 10,000 hours on this. So listeners, I am so very excited to bring Chris onto the podcast. Hey, Chris, welcome. Dolph, thanks so much. I am thrilled to be here. Well, I would love to hear, as someone who helps other people find their passion and ignite their career, how did you find your own career passion and a job you love? Well, Dolph, I'll tell you, I kind of fell into it. 
I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do coming out of college. I fell into a career in retail, was really good in my first job, and didn't feel comfortable in my second one and went to human resources and told them, I'm not so sure I want to do this second rotation. And luckily they said, we have a position open here and they shift me into human resources. And I loved that role. Subsequently, my best friend from college had gone straight to business school at Northwestern and I watched what she was doing and she was getting into brand marketing and I was getting really excited about that. So. I applied to Kellogg Business School. Somehow or another, I got in and I fell in love with marketing. So got into Kellogg, spent 10 years in brand marketing and loved it and was great at certain parts of the role. And other parts, Dolph, were really a struggle for me. I got through, but they were a grind and it was really hard work every day. So fast forward 10 years, four companies, and my company got sold. I continued to interview for other marketing roles. And I also called my very favorite recruiter, a gentleman named Brian O'Connell, who'd become a dear friend and a mentor and said, hey, we're in St. Louis. We don't want to move. We want to raise our kids here. Get me a job in St. Louis. And he threw out, come work for me. That really took me back, but I sat back and thought, what are my favorite parts of my role? And every single favorite part kept coming back to the people. And I talked to mentors who said, I think you'd be really good at it. Go try it for a year. And so I decided to do that. And Dolph, from day one, recruiting felt like breathing. It was easy and I almost felt guilty because I was really good at it and I was able to make quite good money, but it didn't feel like it was working. It felt like it was fun and it was enjoyable and it was so satisfying because I was able to help people achieve their goals. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there when you said it doesn't feel like working. Ultimately, I think that's what we're all kind of looking for out of our jobs. I agree. And I think when you find a role that aligns with your strengths, that's what happens. The other thing that I think was so strategic was your concept of, well, let me just go do this for a year and see if I like it. So many of us, I think, are afraid to take on a new role and think of it as, well, I'm going to try this role out for a year, see if it fits for me. And if it is, great. And if it's not, you know, I can always go back to what I was doing. Well, in talking to mentors, that really gave me some confidence to try it because what they said to me, and I've learned subsequently, is if you go try it for a year, you'll build some skills that you can use in the future. And if it works out, great, you keep going. But if it doesn't work out, those skills will help you be more successful, even if you come back to where you were before. And so that gave me confidence to say, all right, let's go give this a try. No harm, no foul. Right on, Chris. And I've often said this, like when I'm coaching folks or even in my own life as I think about it, I kind of have always thought of myself as going from job to job or engagement to engagement. And oftentimes I'm presented with new challenges and I have to develop new skills. And I think of those as like these tools to go in my toolbox. And I carry that toolbox with me wherever I go. And the toolbox just gets bigger and bigger because I'm taking on new challenges. 
So Dolph, have you read my book? Because that is literally chapter two, where we're talking about learn, do, leverage. And that's what you're doing in the learning phase. Your goal is to filled your toolbox. And my philosophy is in that learning phase, you want to go to the best company you can or work for the smartest people who have been trained at top quality companies so you can fill that toolbox with really high quality tools. And that's how you build a great foundation. Part of the other key, I think, to working for the best company or organization that you can and working for the smartest people is it also raises the bar for what success looks like. So, you know, at a mediocre organization, or if you're working for folks that don't have high standards, you can kind of call it in and still be thought of as successful. But if you're working for really smart people or a really great organization, you've got to take it to the next level or you're not really seen as successful. I agree completely. And if you learn best practices early on in your career, down the road, you can go to that company that doesn't have that expertise and you can be a big fish in a small pond and you can be the one who's like bringing that transformation to that organization and really building that expertise. Absolutely. And the kind of the cool thing is, even as you go to a different organization and you might be a big fish in a small pond, that really smart person or people you were working with or for are still your mentors. Absolutely. And and I'm a huge believer in my book. I have a whole chapter that talks about networking and how critical it is and, and really networking for life and how important it is to build mentors throughout your career, both, you know, reaching up, but also reaching down to other people and helping them along and how rewarding and enriching it is if you do it appropriately. I am in full alignment with you about that it's both rewarding and enriching. And it's interesting, in my own professional life, I have, gosh, I would probably take me two hands to count the number of people that I think of as mentors in different areas who are probably 10 to 20 years ahead of me in their career, which in some cases means they're now retired, but, you know, are 10 to 20 years ahead of me in their career. And these are people that are sort of all over the country, but if I find myself in New York for work, I'm likely to call one of them up and say, hey, I'm in town next week. Can we have coffee? And just the act of having coffee and being able to share with the person what I'm doing and get their feedback, I mean, honestly, it's, it's coaching I couldn't pay for. Oh, I agree. And, and when I was writing the book, for me, being able to reach out to these folks who had been mentors of mine throughout my career and that I had networked with for the last 25 years was so powerful because I was able to get people um, like Bob Eckert, who I had worked with at Kraft and was my VP and president, and then became CEO of Mattel to write a recommendation for my book, or a gentleman who had been head of the books and head of Kindle for Amazon, and, you know, Mike Barkley, who was CEO of Kind, and all these people who are, you know, so well known, and yet it's because of networking and the relationships that they were willing to do that for me. So I am a huge believer. The other thing that networking has done personally for me is, it's brought in so much business 
for me um, because of staying in touch and they know about the O'Connell group where I work and how I operate and we've done work for them that they recommend us time and time again and bring in new business. So it's beneficial and it's also um, rewarding in that it just builds friendships across the country. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I know in my own professional life, I have found networking to absolutely be a two-way street. I cannot tell you, though, how many times I have done someone a favor who's kind of tangential in my network. And the next thing I know, they're telling like three prospective clients about me. And I didn't do it so they would tell three prospective clients about me. It just sort of happens organically. No, I agree. It's it's pretty amazing when you do something like that and you're just giving back and you just want to help and you want to help because people have helped you that good things happen and word gets out that you're a good person and and you're willing to share your knowledge and expertise and that you really know your stuff oh yeah so you've talked a little bit about the importance of working for a great organization and really smart people as a candidate, how do you make sure that's the organization you find? And frankly, that's the boss and the colleagues that you end up with. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And it's really important, as I was saying, I believe there are three stages of your career. There's learn, do, leverage. And where it's most critical is in the learning phase, where you are developing those skills Um, or as we said, you know, developing those tools that you're going to put in your toolbox. And the way you're going to do that is you've got to do research in the industry. And and you may have to work with a career center. You may have to network with people who you've come across um, either via LinkedIn or that you have met through school or other ways. And It is not easy. You've got to do homework. And especially, you know, as we are coming out of this pandemic where there may not be as many jobs as there were, you got to do more legwork, but the jobs are out there. And the other thing you can do, the beauty of LinkedIn is you can also see not just where people are today, but where they have worked in the past. And so you may go to a smaller company, but be working in my world for somebody who had their foundation at a P&G or a Clorox or a Johnson & Johnson, you know, or a Pfizer, one of the top companies. And you just want to be mindful of where did they get their training because that's what they're going to share with you. So you just have to do the legwork and do the homework and not rely on somebody else to do it for you. I've got to reflect for just a second that you also talked about that importance of LinkedIn. And while this is a little bit tangential, LinkedIn is so incredible. You remember 30 years ago when almost everyone had one of those paper Rolodexes that literally like kind of rolled around on their desk and they would get old and they would get stale. Is this person still at this company? Do they have a new job? You know, who are they working with now? LinkedIn, literally, like people update your LinkedIn Rolodex for you. Absolutely. Well, and the other way that I think people don't think about is your high school, your college, your grad school. They are a goldmine 
in terms of resources. They have these alumni networks and oftentimes they have them by location and they have them by industry and they have emails and they have telephone numbers. So you wanna make sure you also tap into those folks because you have something in common with every single one of those folks. And they likely will be very open to hearing from you and helping you. So don't forget about them as well. Again, somewhat tangential, but one of the tricks that I've kind of used with my own alma mater, which is Georgia State University, there have been times that I've said to the college at Georgia State that I graduated from, I know you're working on building your major donor base. I am happy to connect you with people that were at Georgia State at the same time I was and let them know that I'm a donor and I would love to have them get a tour of the new building or, you know, come to this special lecture. And that reach out is just so important and so critical for a lot of reasons. But A, I'm giving value back to my alma mater and people that I went to school with are seeing that as well. Absolutely. I think that's a great thing. Well, and I'll tell you, I I went to Tufts undergrad. I already meant that I went to Kellogg, but I went to Tufts and I had a student reach out to me a month or two ago via LinkedIn. And she sent me a message and it was really powerful. And, And she just said, you know, I'm a fellow jumbo. I'm very interested in marketing, doing research. I love your background. I love that you were in marketing and shifted to recruiting in marketing. I'd love to hear your journey and love to get advice from you. Would you be willing to talk? And and then she was really respectful. She's like, I am confident you're crazy busy, so I understand if you don't have time to talk, but I would be so appreciative if you would. And, and Dolph, I'll tell you, I got back to her within 30 seconds saying, how could I not respond to you? This is a, you know, very powerful message and and kudos to you for wonderful networking and let's chat. So that is so cool. And I don't know why, but it makes me think I have to share with you one of the best experiences I've had as an alum at Georgia State. The college that I graduated from a few years ago wanted to do mock interviews for uh, graduate students and undergrad seniors who were just about to graduate. And so they had some of us who, who are alum who've, you know, done reasonably well. And they asked us, you know, who have hired people over the course of our career. And they've essentially asked us to sit down and do a mock interview for, you know, a morning with three or four people. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I was blown away. These are such smart, intelligent, articulate young people with such bright futures. So good good for my alma mater because it was a great way to cultivate me and really be impressed at the school I graduated from. But also, you know, what a meaningful way to actually contribute. Absolutely. I think that's great. And then I don't know if those those students you talked to got to you, you know, messaged you afterwards. But, you know, as I've done a lot of sessions and seminars and training since I, I launched my book, the kids that I'm most impressed with are the ones who then link into me and message me and thank me and then ask if I if they can stay in touch with me and and keep me apprised of their career journey. And those are the ones who got what I was saying and followed through and are going to be very successful. Right on. Now, as we're talking about mock interviews, let's talk about real interviews. What are some things that people can do to prep for the interview so they have a really strong interview? Yeah. So um, the first thing I will tell you is if you're lucky enough to get an interview, not 
doing your homework is like going to Harvard and leaving before you take your last final. So not getting your degree because you don't take that last final. It's really foolish. So I am a huge believer in doing a lot of homework and a lot of prep before you have your interview. And I just read something um, that one of our candidates wrote about that before every interview, he does 10 hours of work. Now, I think that's a little bit excessive because much of that work can be taken across them. But this is my philosophy. You want to do homework on yourself and your company. And the homework on yourself is your experience. You want to be able to articulate who you are and how you make a difference. If somebody says to you, what are your strengths? What are your accomplishments? Dolph, and you rattle those off, and I ask them 10 minutes later, what are your strengths? They won't remember them. It'll go in one ear and out the other. But if you can say, my top two strengths are A and B, and let me give you an example of how they have allowed me to deliver success and you tell quick stories that visualize the success, there's some chemical reaction that allows people to both remember it and believe it. So what I tell my candidates to, to do is to come up with strengths and write a strength at the top of each index card. And then think of an example of where that strength allowed you to achieve your goal and write it out in what I call the star example. So it's situation, it's like what's going on, thinking, which can be the analysis, the market research, the trend, what the sales guy told you. The way to think about thinking is, it's that light bulb or the aha that goes off, that takes you to the action and then the result. And these stories should be one to two minutes in length. And I'll give you a really quick, tight example that I, I used to share. So example, when I was a craft way back when, uh, introducing a new product to the market, we had to get it out very fast because a competitor was coming to market. And in the meetings, we had an R&D guy who was throwing up obstacles all over the place and really getting in the way of our success. And so the thinking I did was trying to figure out what was behind his obstacles. I couldn't figure out why he didn't want us to be successful and why he wasn't on board. So I talked to a couple of people who had worked with him in the past, and they shared with me that he was really so over what he called brand babies, people like me, coming in telling him what to do without acknowledging his 30 years of experience and so from that, the light bulb that went off is I needed to get to him and really build a relationship and ask for his help and acknowledge his experience. So I called him and said, will you meet me for coffee? And I sat down with him and I said, look, I can't do this without you. You've been doing this for a long time. Can you help me figure out roadblocks? Help me figure out how to do this. You're the one in the know. Can you help us navigate this? And we sat down for two hours and talk through everything. And the result was he went from being my adversary to my biggest advocate my entire time at Craft. And from this example, Dolph, what they're gonna remember is, they may not remember Chris is great at influencing, but they're gonna remember Chris is the one who won over that guy. Anyway, so that's what I tell everybody to do. So I tell them to write out all the examples 
and then to talk them out loud so that they know exactly what they want to say. So they've got to become the expert in explaining their strengths. Then they do the exact same thing with their achievements, because if they don't know themselves inside and out and can't articulate who they are and how they make a difference, they're never going to be able to share that and to sell themselves to the client. Yeah, that's the first thing. Then the other thing they've got to do is they have got to do homework on the client. They've got to go to their website. They've got to do research on the competitors. They've got to be able to demonstrate they're sincerely interested in the client, in the company, and in the job. Because if they don't, it could cost them the job. So, Chris, there's one pro tip I want to share, and a lot of our listeners probably already know this, but when you're doing your research on a prospective nonprofit employer, every nonprofit's tax form is public information. And so that's the IRS Form 990. It's available at ProPublica. It's available at GuideStar for free. And I've always said to folks, whether you're applying to be a case manager or the executive director, you really want to pull that 990 and you want to dive into a little bit as this organization and maybe even pull it for a few years. Is it having surpluses from year to year or is it having deficits from year to year? Is it having executive turnover? Because normally your chief executive is the person who often signs your 990. Is it a different person every year? And this will also help you tailor, not only understand the organization, but tailor the stories that you tell and the questions that you ask. And so if you know an organization for two of the last three years has at a deficit, you could tell a story about ways, whether or not you're responsible for fundraising, about ways that you helped sort of smooth over and bring in additional revenue or cut expenses if you're a program manager. If you can tell that this organization has had some real leadership transitions, you can talk about ways that you've worked successfully in environments that have high churn in leadership and what you did to support leadership and to help leadership be successful. But I just have to say, like as a pro tip, if you're looking for work in the nonprofit sector, you've got to pull the 990 and you've got to study that. I think that's a great augment. I think that makes enormous sense. Um, The other thing that I would tell people to do is look and see if they know people who either work at the company or have worked at the company. And if they do reach out to kind of get the inside perspective, But the more homework you can do, the more it demonstrates your true interest. And that's really important, especially today in such a competitive job market. Totally. Now, let's fast forward to the interview. Let's say someone's got a job offer on the table. The prospective employer said, we want to hire you. How does that applicant or that candidate negotiate well for themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. Really uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, and and my philosophy is um, what you want to do is receive the offer and be very excited about it. Ask them to send you all the information, benefits if you're relocating, relocation information, get it all. Ask to have conversations with hiring managers if you want to talk to peers to understand more about the culture ask all those questions and figure out what informational questions do you have and get them all asked. And then think, do I want to work here? So Dolph, I never let anybody negotiate until we know they want to be there. Then think about what are the few things you want to negotiate? 
I don't think you ever want to have a laundry list. Um, so come up with a couple things and then you want to build rationale as to why you're asking for the thing. So it might be, is there anything you can do on compensation package? And the rationale might be, while I appreciate what you've done, I'm due for a raise here, which makes this a lateral offer. Anything you can do in terms of increasing the base or putting a sign on, I don't wanna tell you what to do, but it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you might say, you know, is there anything you could do on vacation right now? I have four weeks and you guys are offering three weeks or, you know, it might be something else, but giving them the background in the rationale, not that you're greedy, but that you have really good solid business case for them and not telling them how to meet your needs. But the goal I believe when you negotiate is to Put your request on the table, give them the rationale, don't tell them how to do it, and then put you both on the same side of the table trying to achieve the goal. And that way you're working together and you both are trying to achieve the goal because they want you to say yes and you want to say yes. It increases the likelihood of it working out and it really increases the positive momentum and the goodwill. The worst thing you can do is negotiate and ask for something and then say no, because that really leaves a bad taste in the mouth and the world is way too small. So that's how we recommend you negotiate. So I've got a couple tactical questions for you. Does that mean that you are recommending, as an example, if someone wants to negotiate on compensation? And in my experience, hiring people, that's that's the number one thing people typically want to negotiate. Does that mean the candidate should not name an amount or should they say if you could get this $5,000 more or $10,000 more? So you can say, you know, ideally, you know, if you could get to here, that would be phenomenal. But the reality is, Dolph, we don't know what levers they can pull. We don't know what sort of internal constraints they have. They may not have enough money in the base that they can increase the base, but they may be able to give you a sizable sign-on. And so that's why you don't want to back them into a corner, but you do want to, you can say, you know, ideally, if you could get to here, that would be best. But if you can't, I would appreciate a sign-on or something else. So you can do it, but you also want to give them some flexibility. I like that approach a lot. And I just want to share with you one of the other ways that I've seen prospective employees negotiate well for themselves is they talk about what they're going to be leaving on the table. And so a few years ago, I was a part of a group that was helping to bring in a high-level person at a nonprofit. And the candidate had essentially said, you know, I'm vesting in the retirement plan next year, and that means I'm leaving all of the employer match on the table because I'm not vested yet. I need a signing bonus equivalent to that. And, you know, we heard that and that seemed really fair. And I think that's absolutely fair. That's something else you can negotiate. Oftentimes, um, if you have an earned bonus, you can say that. If there's long-term incentive or like you're saying, you know, a pension plan or something that's out years, many times they'll discount it, but it is something very fair to bring up and there's real value there. 
The other thing you mentioned, and I would just love for us to explore it, and this has only happened to me a few times as an executive director or a hiring manager, but it has happened, and you're right, it left a bad taste in my mouth. And that's when we negotiated in good faith with a candidate. They actually would accept the job and then two days later come back with some reason about why they can't take the job. Yeah, um, and, and that is not a good thing to do. You burn so many bridges doing that. You're much better off, you know, if you have something else in the mix, being upfront and saying, you know what, could I have another day or two? You know, I have another opportunity that's come up and I would really like to explore that one too. If I say yes to you, I want to be a thousand percent committed. And if you can give me the weekend, then Monday I will get back to you with an answer. And if I say yes, I am absolutely coming and joining your organization. I bet you would have felt a whole bunch better about that than the person saying yes on a Friday and then turning around on a Monday or Tuesday and saying no. And I will say, and not just me, but really everyone on that particular organization, senior leadership team, kind of felt sort of used, almost like, okay, this person took an offer, accepted it, and then used it to get something better, either with their current employer or some other employer. Absolutely. And and Dolph, I will also, I think that's a great point. Um, I am not a believer in counteroffers um, with your current company. I, I have, have truly never seen them work. If somebody is, if somebody wants more money from their current company, or a promotion, I'm a big believer in putting a business case together with your current company and saying, you know, I, I would like to talk about getting a raise or talk about when I'm going to be promoted. And here's the rationale. Let me walk you through it. And let's talk about when this might happen. And they, if they might say, you know what, you've put a great presentation, a business case, and, and within three months, we'll make this happen. Or they might say, you know what, we're not in the same place and, and this isn't going to happen for you here and you'll know it. But when we have seen people accept counteroffers, Dolph, like this person might have done, it never works out because typically the reason they were looking to begin with hasn't gone away. You know, they might have gotten a little bit more money and they, they're sticking around their company, but I don't know anybody who looks at their paycheck every day and says, this is the reason I'm here. This is the reason I'm, I'm happy at my company. That extra little bit of money, it goes away really fast in terms of happiness. It's what you do day in and day out. And so I always tell people when they go and resign, if companies start making noise about making a counteroffer, to stop them and just to say, hey, I respect you far too much. And I don't want you to waste your time putting together a counteroffer. This is the right move for me professionally and personally. And I want to stay on really good terms with you. So please do not put any effort into a counteroffer. Let's just stay in touch for the long term. Amen. And I have to share with you as a chief executive, my take on this has always been, if you've reached the point that you are ready to resign, you've already emotionally left this job. So, you know, as you kind of said, even if I came up with more money, chances are in six months' time or eight months' time, you're going to leave. Now, one of the things that I have on occasion done as an executive director is I will say to the person, can we 
give you a bonus as you leave so that instead of giving us a month's notice, you give us two months' notice so we can hire the person who's going to replace you and then you can train that person. And I've actually seen that work effectively a couple times when their future employer is willing to wait that long. And, and that's, a different, that's a different story. And especially if the future employer's willing to say, okay, that we, we can wait because the incumbent's still here or whatever. And, and I could see that being a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, I want to make sure we get to the off-the-map question. We're having a great conversation, and I know our listeners would love to continue to get negotiation tips and interview uh, tips from you today. But the off-the-map question today I understand that you are named after a very famous person, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's um, <laughs> it's a very interesting story. So my understanding is um, I was originally going to be named Jane, and uh, two weeks before, if I was a girl, I was born uh, my parents' cousin had a daughter and named her Jane. And that really irritated them. And so they were kind of, they didn't know what to do. And it was around the time that Miracle on 34th Street came out. And um, they really liked that movie. And they liked the main character, Chris Kringle. And they decided, okay, boy or girl, we're going to name this kid Chris. And so that's how um, nice Jewish girl got named after Santa Claus. So a couple things. First of all, um, Miracle on 34th Street is one of my favorite movies, and I'm also not really Christian. Second, I just have to ask, do you ever fill out the birth date section of any form and say, as old as my tongue and a little bit younger than my teeth? No, I did not. And listeners, in case you don't know, um, Chris Kringle in the movie Miracle on 34th Street actually filled out an employment application, and that's what he put down for his birth date. Old as my tongue, a little bit older than my teeth. <laughs> Next time I watch the movie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch for that. If you recall the point that Miss, and clearly, and by the way, listeners, we've not already talked about this, so I'm clearly about to nerd out here. Um, if you recall the point that Miss Walker asked for Chris Kringle's employment card, and she pulls the employment card, and the camera zooms on the employment card, and like the next of kin have reindeer names, it's it is a great employment card. It's a great movie. Even the and even the remake is pretty darn cute. Mm-hmm. Now I'll also share with you until this year. I typically was on the road about 100 to 125,000 miles a year. And so always last couple of weeks of the year, I was on a plane, often my last plane ride home before being off for winter break. And that's always what I pull up on my laptop. Normally I would work and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to watch Miracle on 34th Street on my way home tonight. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, I want to make sure that you know how to reach out to Chris. First of all, her website is igniteyourcareerbook.com. At that website, you can not only get a link to purchase her book at Amazon, but you can also find out more about help you can get on your own career journey. Think about coaching, 
resumes, interview prep, negotiation coaching. If those are any of the things that you think you might benefit from, make sure you check out igniteyourcareerbook.com. And it's a special offer just for our listeners. She is offering 10% off the services at her site with a coupon code SUCCESSFULNONPROFIT10. That's SUCCESSFULNONPROFIT10. And finally, if you are in the marketing or marketing research world, also check out O'ConnellGroup.com. That's O'ConnellGroup.com. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Dolph, it has been wonderful chatting with you. Listeners, if you missed the URL, igniteyourcareerbook.com, or just think you may not remember it by the time you get to a pen and paper, don't worry about it. Go to successfulnonprofits.com, and there, at our show notes, you can get the links to her two URLs, um, a link to her book on Amazon, and also the coupon code, which is SuccessfulNonprofit10. And also, listeners, I started the episode. If you're now in April and you're starting to see your way out of the fog of pandemic and recession, and you're thinking, yes, as we think about closing out 2021, we need to have a great strategic plan to launch into 2022. Well, dear listeners, a good planning process is going to take you six, maybe even eight months. So reach out now and see if we can fit you into our schedule for strategic planning. And finally, if you liked this episode, there are two that I think you will especially enjoy. The first is episode 149, Job Interview Questions and Answers with Evan Pekera. And the second is episode 124, Strategies to Get the Director-Level Job with Executive Search Consultant Kevin Chase. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And as always, I just got to give you the disclaimer. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is meant for informational purposes only and is not designed to be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of that, please reach out to a qualified, licensed professional.